This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, listeners. Welcome to Immigrantly. I'm your host, Adia Khan. I know it hasn't been even a week since our last episode with phenomenal Shreya Tanisha, but we simply couldn't hold back. Today, we are bringing you a very special story, one which is personal to me and is also being released out of order because of today's symbolic date, that of August 14th the Independence Day of Pakistan, my home country. On this day, 73 years ago, Pakistan achieved independence from the British, who ruled over the subcontinent of India, Pakistan and Bangladesh for almost 200 years. Yeah, that's right. Through Karachi streets drives the Kedi Azam, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, Pakistan's first governor-general. It's Karachi's first day of independence, and the crowds are out to greet him and Earl Mountbatten. On his last day as Viceroy, he is here to inaugurate the transfer of power. August 15th, in similar recognition, is Independence Day for India, which may surprise some of you because both countries gained independence on the same day but decided to pick different dates to celebrate. While the mark of freedom was monumental for these two countries, and to be honest, is still deserving of celebration, August 14th and 15th are no easy days to reckon with, especially if you identify from that region. I grew up learning about British colonialism, the complicated politics, its discrimination towards the natives, us, its thievery of resources and feeling that tension on my skin and in my bones even as I was far removed time-wise from those decades of and centuries, in fact, of colonialism. But it's a story that my grandparents experienced, and more so my husband's grandparents and his parents, who at the time were on Indian side of what is called Indian Punjab now. And they had to migrate, and they lost lives of family members, they lost everything they had to come to Pakistan. And although I recognize that we are dealing with our own social issues today, we must pay heed to historical happenings and acknowledge that there are events of the past that influence our behavior, our understanding of the world as we know it, our judgments about people who immigrate to our countries. With guidance from and writing by Yusra Hussain and her online platform, Their Stories, we are bringing you a narrative that isn't popularly shared by historians. Despite its current implications on migration patterns, 
The results of colonialism should never be ignored and this episode aims to share those patterns and complexities. It's important to Yusra and to myself that we learn about what life was like under colonial rule. To remember that its legacies are very much with us today and to acknowledge that independence is a bittersweet day for many because so much was lost in the process. First, I want to thank Yusra for narrating her granddad's story and for her candid, passionate contributions to this episode. We are so grateful that she brought this idea to us in the first place. It is people like her who hold the past in the present so we may live more aware and accountable. Please everyone, get comfortable and let's take a dive back together. British rule in the subcontinent began with their taking control of the spice trade in the region by proxy of the East India Company. Sneaky, huh? I guess that's why South Asians are so skeptical, because we were tricked into something so mischievous. The company later expanded its influence through revenue collectors established in the regions which only further consolidated the crown's power. Indian rulers were allowed in some cases to remain in power as figureheads by handing over wealth and resources to the British. The East India Company rule in India granted by the British government began in 1757 and ended a century later with the Indian Rebellion in 1857. So how do you weaken a country? By pitting its citizenry against each other. And that's exactly what the British did. Throughout the British rule, policies of divide and rule were employed. As indicated by the name, divide the populations inhabiting what was then just India, leveraging religious and ethnic tensions and the caste system. They used it to their advantage by favoring different groups in each state they went to. In 1857, however, Much to the surprise of the British, these groups rose together in an attempt to overthrow the British. This became known as the Indian Rebellion. Let's break down the reasons for this rebellion. A host of forces contributed to the uprising, but general dissent basically grew out of being treated as second-class individuals. The British disregarded their customs, considered their religions inferior, and all the while they recruited them to fight in the british army these locals who served as soldiers for the british were known as sepoys now keep in mind this was the 19th century when military devices were much less sophisticated for instance bullets had to be broken into before they could be used in guns to break them in soldiers would have to bite the bullet literally so that the gunpowder could be released The sepoys found this to be offensive and objectionable on religious grounds. Why, you may ask? Well, many sepoys were Hindus, Sikhs or Muslims. Beef is forbidden to Hindus while pork is forbidden to Muslims. The British used animal fat to coat the bullets. How cruel, right? Hence for these native soldiers, biting the bullet was as the saying goes in direct conflict with their religious identity. but british did not care 
it confirmed the insensitivity of the British and sparked one of the largest rebellions in the 200 years of British rule. The native soldiers stormed Delhi, declaring the Mughal Emperor Bahadur Shah Zafar the rightful ruler of India. In cogent response, the British removed the emperor from power, exiling him to Burma. The rebellion, although unsuccessful in throwing out the British, led to the dissolution of the East India Company and the introduction of the direct British rule in the subcontinent. No surprises there. When looking at the history of colonized India, we see a pattern of theft. In resource, language and culture. The British were able to quell dissent because they changed not only the language of operation for those indigenous to the subcontinent to English, but also the justice system, the financial system and way of life. The Indians found it almost impossible to fight in a system they did not understand and nearly impossible one that was built to keep them out the natives. A large strategy of the British rule in India was making and keeping the Indians as second-class citizens in their own country. How cruel is that? This would be through the positions they were allowed to work in, never higher than a clerk in the government, in their own country, where they were allowed to study, if at all, and most humiliatingly, treating them as exotic others. Ring a bell? Many British occupiers only saw India as a holiday destination. And we continue to see the glorification of the empire days today in media covering the British Raj, the term used for this period of direct British rule. I know this is a lot of information to filter through and to understand, but stay with me. It's so important that we look at our history and understand the kind of impact imperialism has on native populations and how it leads to their displacement, how it leads to migration patterns. Now, going back to what we were talking about earlier, history also sometimes tends to forget or minimize the Amritsar massacre in 1919, in which 1,000 Indians were killed by the British Army while out celebrating a religious festival. The general responsible was never punished, and many continued to see it as a British success in quelling rebellion. I'm sure many of you have heard arguments for colonization state, right? That the industrialization, railways, education and advancement of these countries could not have happened without British intervention. In fact, British intervention was almost necessary. These arguments are completely false and incomplete at best. What they forget to take into account is the reason the British went looking for these countries in the first place, as many current imperial powers do. The nations that make up the subcontinent were the richest in the world, financially and resource-wise. And by the way, it is so unfortunate that this part of history is not taught in American curriculum. My kids had no idea that subcontinent was one of the richest regions before British colonized it. I had to sit them down and explain to them 
The population of subcontinent was made up of highly skilled people. In fact, the British shipbuilding industry felt threatened by the Indian shipbuilding, so they forced the locals to learn the British techniques. As a result, forgetting their own over generations, the railways were not laid for Indian advancement. They were built to transport goods across the country for the British traders. The Indians would travel in separate carriages in horrible conditions. There is no way of saying what route the industrial revolution would have taken or what the subcontinent would look like today, but it is egregious to credit the British with any success for their centuries of rule. The British not only stole resources from the subcontinent through selling them untaxed back in Britain and Europe with the local population never seeing any of the money they also stole lives. Yes, lives. The British may have legally abolished slavery in 1833, but they still needed people to work. Their sugar, coffee and other plantations across the empire. They sent boatloads of Indian people across to Eastern Africa and the Caribbean. In the Caribbean, those that survived the journey were then forced to work as indentured laborers on plantations. In lieu of the slave trade, which was abolished, Indians in East Africa were used as laborers to lay the new railways, as they had done in their own country. By the way, this history only gets more complicated and troubling. The local population also fought for the British in both world wars. In World War I, the Indians were promised independence at the end of the war, in exchange for fighting. At least 74,847 Indian soldiers lost their lives. Fighting for the British for a war they knew little about, in hopes of freedom and independence on the other side. Over 87,000 Indian soldiers lost their lives in World War II. Have you ever heard anybody acknowledge that or talk about it in the West? I haven't. Today, when countries across the West celebrate their fallen soldiers and veterans, very few remember the Indians that lost their lives fighting for the empire. So far, we've talked about what was happening during British colonization. Now let's move to the partition. How did it happen? How did native population achieve the unimaginable? Now the tensions sowed and tended by British from 1757 finally came to a head in 1942 with the Quit India Resolution. The British were ready to leave their crown jewel, conveniently taking some with them, but the discussions that surrounded their leaving were highly fractured. Tensions between the majority Hindu population and the large minority Muslim population were high. After many conversations between the popular Congress party, the All India Muslim League and the British, an agreement for a two-state solution was struck. Congress was not a fan of this decision. But the mass riots across the country resulting in substantial deaths on both sides 
highlighted the cause for separate nations. There was a lot of violence in the month leading up to independence when the India Bill had been read. The city of Gwalior saw abductions of Muslims and a deteriorating situation, with false propaganda and literature being distributed. Shops and accommodation were being looted. In the nearby town of the Noli, mosques were being stoned with reports of Muslims killed. Leaving for Lashkar, I saw three casualties, and in Lashkar itself, there were more casualties and cases of arson. This, my friends, became the partition. The Muslim League fought for the idea of a nation for the minorities of India as they believed that their voices would not be heard otherwise. The Hindu majority was against partition and to date considers Pakistan an integral part of India. Hence tensions between the two nations, even to this day. While the British were involved heavily in the initial partitioning of these two nations, leading to much further disagreement and a lot of underhanded decision-making, pretty quintessential British, their eventual exit from the subcontinent was expedited in which British soldiers stood back amongst the confusion of partition. People would wake up either side of the border believing they were in Pakistan or India, but finding out they were in the wrong country. The world's largest mass migration of people took place practically overnight as people attempted to travel to the country they wanted to call home. Over one million lives were lost in the rioting, in fighting and confusion that followed. On 11th September, Nehru weeps, threatening to resign if conditions did not improve. Martial law was imposed in Delhi as the number of casualties continued to rise, with a curfew from 5.30 to 9 in Lashkar. By 15th September, migration was in full swing, and the conditions continued to deteriorate, with the worst of it in Delhi. Attacks on trains to Pakistan continued. By then, I knew I had to leave Lashkar leaving forever on 18th September. The motor bus we were on was about to be upturned, but we were saved. The next day, my family began to make their fractured way across. Amongst the violence and the hatred, divisions, it is important to remember that for some of the public on both sides of the new border, camaraderie remained. I was in the Baraghar North Camp. It was gloomy, and I was all alone with no friends. It was my first ray of liberty on the road to Pakistan. I relied on the help of strangers, many of whom were friendly and sympathetic. And in the city, there was a great gathering one Saturday when the Muslims were garlanded by the Hindus amid all the violence across the country. As people moved away and I continued to stay on my own among strangers, my peace of mind was highly disturbed for apparent reasons. How long have I borne this? As the length of time apart from my family increased, I did not know when I will be reunited. The minutes and distance lengthened. All acquaintances had deserted me. It was becoming difficult to pass the time. Once I had thought of settling here in Bhopal, but not anymore. The circumstances had changed my mind. I wanted to go to Pakistan. I could not live here even for a day. 
In early December, the situation was worsening. There was an accident. My brother was wounded in the head by Hindus on returning from the hospital. By the middle of December, the camp was being vacated. In the middle of March, I left for Pakistan, the land of my hopes. How I longed to go there and how I removed the stumbling blocks to take my very first step for Pakistan. I marched forward with a glimpse of my acquaintances in Baraghar as I left Baraghar. Onward moved the train, backward moved the land where for the first time I had sought refuge. The lights of the camp gradually faded away into darkness. The British had basically washed their hands and this was solely an Indian and Pakistani problem. Let's now talk about how all of this is linked to migration to the West because that's the premise of our episode to make these connections and create an understanding of how colonialism has impacted migration patterns. So Indians began migrating to the West during the British rule, usually to the UK for education, many studying at Oxford and other universities, working as barristers after qualifying, including both Gandhi and Muhammad Ali Jinnah, and then returning to India. Some of these Indians would stay back, beginning the presence of South Asians in the UK. Others would also migrate to the US. Although that period was prior to the 1917 Immigration Act, which banned all migration from the subcontinent. Coming to post-independence migration, it is often ignorantly questioned by many. I'm sure some of you have faced questions like, why did you kick out the British if you decided to come here? Oh, and there's another one. Go back to where you came from. Come on, y'all. You have to be creative in your insults. This is getting so lame now. Now, there are a host of reasons for this shift in migration patterns. First, post-war, Britain needed to be rebuilt, and cheaply. And because post-independence, India and Pakistan were also economically struggling, the British made it attractive for people to migrate to the UK, to work in factories and as laborers, rebuilding the country as visas were not required yet. Hence, many Indians and Pakistanis that were displaced by partition migrated once again to the Britain in the 1950s. As such large groups migrated, they continued to live in insular communities, usually to protect with minimal success from the rising racism of their hosts. The 1962 Commonwealth Act changed this, limiting migration from the Commonwealth, which is a political association of 54 member states, nearly all former territories of the British Empire, basically every state that was fucked over by the British. Many East Africans of South Asian descent migrated to the UK during this time as well, as they had British passports and no longer felt safe in their home countries due to increasing racism at all levels, micro, meso and macro. In the case of Uganda, they were basically expelled in the 1970s, following the independence of Bangladesh, many Bangladeshis also migrated to the UK looking for work and safety. Today, although it is much more difficult to migrate to the UK, migration from the subcontinent continues as the legacy of colonialism continues to play a part in the countries today. 
We can see this in colonial era laws. Extreme poverty as a result of 200 years of looting and the tensions between India and Pakistan. In the UK, the population of South Asians today stands at 4.8% of the total population, making them the largest ethnic minority in the country as of the 2011 census. Numbers have grown since, I'm sure. While there are some political figures in the leading parties that have some South Asian heritage, there is still a lot of low-level racism in both parties, especially increasing levels of Islamophobia. Representation in media is also similarly patchy, with some new TV shows beginning to represent the South Asian working-class minority. Many other popular shows continue to display tropes of the South Asian community, like Little Britain and Citizen Khan. On the education front, the community is equally split, with the Indian population outperforming the Pakistani and Bangladeshi communities. The growing relationship between the UK and India have made it easier for Indians to obtain work and study visas compared to the Pakistanis and Bangladeshis, which may go some way into explaining this divide. It should go without saying the impact of the empire on the subcontinent continues to be felt to this day, both at home and in the UK. So while independence was only 73 years ago, it lays largely forgotten by the non-South Asian world. Here lies a small bit of our history, and it is my hope that we continue to educate ourselves on the ways colonialism still infiltrates our cultures today, from migration patterns to constructs of class, education, and communities. If you are interested in learning more about Yusra and her platform, their stories, take a peek at this episode's bio for more information and direction. Boxers In the end, thank you all for taking the time to hear this history out. My history, in fact. Thank you to Yudi Loof for assisting Yusra in script writing, guiding her for your commitment to the kind of work that Immigrantly does. Thank you, Yusra, for all your hard work and bringing this incredible story together. With deep appreciation, until next time. Give